I'm Mark Rees, and welcome to my curious podcast where, in each episode, I look at a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And in this episode, we'll be going in search of the ghost of arguably Wales's most famous man of words, none other than Dylan Thomas himself. And this is quite an ambitious episode. We'll also be looking at Dylan's beliefs in an afterlife, including the fact that he believed he had personally seen a ghost. This is a story, quite a rare story, that he told to one of the world's most famous ghost hunters back in the 1940s. On top of that, the search for Dylan's supposed ghost takes us much further afield than Wales. Yes, there are sightings in his hometown of Swansea. And yes, there are even more sightings in Larne, the picturesque town in West Wales where he spent the last years of his life. But that's just part of the story which leads us to the English capital, to London, and even further afield across the pond to America in search of Welsh ghosts. But before we start talking about Dylan Thomas's afterlife, we should begin by taking a quick look at his life itself. Who exactly was Dylan Thomas? And why is he such a towering figure in the culture of Wales? Well, to begin at the beginning, Dylan Thomas was born in Swansea on the 27th of October 1914. And in all his career, as a poet, as a writer, as a playwright, and many other things, one of his big claims to fame nowadays is that he is said to be the second most quoted English-language poet after William Shakespeare. Now, that's quite a big claim to fame. And I would say a large part of that is thanks to the phenomenal popularity of his most famous poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. And the line that follows that title in the poem itself is even more famous again, and that is Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. Now, even if you've never heard of Dylan Thomas before, if you've never heard of the title of that poem before, there is a very good chance that you've heard those words before. On film, TV, tattoos, I I think the most famous one was uh, Prince Jackson, Michael Jackson's son, had this tattooed on on him uh, a few years ago, and that made the headlines. On the big screen, there's Independence Day, starring Will Smith and a a host of other famous faces, which, sadly for me, did not live up to the expectations of the trailer. The trailer looked amazing. You know, the aliens blowing up the White House and stuff. And then the film came out, uh, and it was a bit, uh, okay. Although another film, which which did live up to, to my expectations at least, was Interstellar, the Christopher Nolan film. And it was Michael Caine's character who repeated the Rage, rage against the dying of the light lines over and over again. And on the small screen, uh, and I I like this one because it has a nice Welsh connection. It was used in an episode of Doctor Who. 
which you may or may not know is made in Wales, made by BBC Wales, based in Cardiff. And in that particular episode, this is back in David Tennant's day. And he quotes a line from that Dylan Thomas poem at none other than William Shakespeare himself, the man who is just one step above Dylan in the list of most quoted poets in the English language. So that is Dylan's most famous work, but of course he has done a lot more besides. And what I think makes him quite suitable for a podcast like this, where, where we go in search of the, the, the paranormal, is that he did have something of a preoccupation with death in a lot of his work. And while we've looked at his most famous poem, I think if we were to look at some of his other famous works, his second, his third, his fourth most famous poems, say, we would see this theme continues. Just take the title alone of And Death Shall Have No Dominion. Or even Fern Hill, which is this wonderful recollection of an idyllic childhood when everything was perfect. Even that, at the end, takes a turn when he talks of time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. But it's not just about the poems. Dylan was, of course, uh, an accomplished story writer, a short story writer, and did write a good old traditional ghost story called The Followers, which is very creepy and eerie, both in a in, in a, a gothic-y, spooky ghost story way, but also in a more creepy human way. But I don't I don't want to spoil Dylan's works here. If you haven't read Dylan's short stories, or, or the followers in particular, I can highly recommend tracking them down and reading them rather than listening to me massacre them on a podcast. And of course, before we get into the paranormal parts of this podcast, I can't talk about Dylan Thomas without mentioning what is, for many, his masterpiece the play for Voices Under Milk Wood, which came right at the end of his career, and it is something we will look at later on in this episode. Anyway, that's enough of the groundwork. On to the real reason we're all listening to this podcast, on to the ghost sightings. And you might imagine that Dylan Thomas is such a famous character, such a huge personality, that there must be 101 sightings of his ghost out there in the world. Just look at other famous people who are still seen in their old haunts. People like Elvis or John Lennon or Abraham Lincoln or Henry VIII. People are seeing their ghosts all over the place, in the most unusual places, you know, stop for petrol and there's, there's, there's Elvis playing a song for some reason. Dylan Thomas, however, has not been as prolific. But nevertheless, there are some fascinating stories out there. And I, I had to hunt high and low for some of these. So the, the Dylan accounts are not in the obvious places, but it's more a case of quality over quantity with Dylan. There might not be as many stories as there are about, say, Elvis, but 
The stories that are out there are good ones. And we'll start our investigation in what, what I think are Dylan's more iconic pilgrimage locations, and that is his final home in Larne, the town in Carmarthenshire, which, which is also his final resting place. Dylan's grave can be visited there in St. Martin's Church, but his boathouse where he spent the last few years of his life and his equally iconic writing shed, which sits just above it. And before we get into the Dylan-specific stories, let's have a very quick look at the other ghosts, which are said to be haunting this, this wonderfully idyllic little hamlet in West Wales. Now, the most sighted creature in and around this area is the Gwilki, which I dedicated the last episode of this podcast to. So if you haven't listened to it already, at the end of this, I'd recommend going back and listening to the Gwilki podcast. But just very quickly, to bring everyone up to speed, the Gwilki is also known as the Dog of Darkness. It is a four-legged creature said to be black in the shape of a mastiff with glowing red eyes, which haunts the roads of Wales at night. And it's quite terrifying if you're unlucky enough to bump into one of them. Now, one person did in a haunted lane near Larne Castle. And the Gwithki isn't the only supernatural creature said to be lurking in the area. Apparently, eerie apparitions have been seen moving among the shadows on the battlements of Larne Castle after the shades of night have fallen. There has also been reports of some visitors being pushed down the stairs by unseen hands. So if the fact that the Gwithki wandering about outside, by all accounts, it either starts or it ends its little trek around the town from the castle. If that wasn't enough, there's also ghosts moving around on the battlements, and there might even be unseen hands pushing people downstairs. Now, another Larne landmark, which is said to be a hot spot for ghosts, is the estuary. The town is on the estuary of the River Taff, and these ghosts are said to be supernatural cockle pickers in the estuary gathering the shellfish long after shuffling off this mortal coil. And one of the other ghosts seen there, which is believed to be a specific person rather than just the general cockle pickers, is a woman who is described as having red hair, flowing garments, and she gives the impression that she's walking through the water before vanishing just like that, vanishing into thin air. And running alongside the estuary is a street called Victoria Street, which, again, is another place which is said to be good to see ghosts. And when you bear in mind that the street's nickname is Hangman's Street, you can probably work out why. This was the scene of many a death, so it is said, when the gallows stood there many, many years ago. And if you were to follow Victoria Street or Hangman Street, you would walk past the graveyard, which itself has a nice view out over the estuary, as does a little landmark 
just a few more minutes further up the road, and that would be Dylan Thomas's writing shed, which is perched just above Dylan Thomas's boathouse. Both of these are very photogenic. If, if you aren't familiar with them, I'd recommend having a quick internet search to, to see exactly what these places look like and the wonderful views they have. But Dylan Thomas himself isn't really believed to be haunting them as such. There have been reports of a ghost there, and some people over the years have attributed it to Dylan, including one of my ghost hunting heroes who I'll be talking about very soon. But Dylan's ghost, according to one or two local sightings, is more likely to be seen walking the streets, presumably retracing his steps, which he would have taken in life, maybe walking from the boathouse to the pub and back. Walking the streets a bit like the Gwilki, although not together. He's not actually walking the dog, as it were. But certainly outside is where Dylan is, is said to be seen. Inside, the ghost is considered to be another member of the Thomas family. And because some of the characteristics of this haunting are actually quite useful. This, this ghost apparently has been known to do some dusting and cleaning and likes to move objects around as if they are rearranging them for aesthetic reasons, not just being a nuisance. And as such, it has been suggested that this ghost might be the ghost of Dylan's mother, Florence. Now, Dylan was born and raised in Swansea, which is where his parents lived for the vast majority of his life. And it was in 1949, towards the end, that he moved with his wife to Larne, and while there, he converted what was at the time a garage just above the boathouse to use as his personal little writing shed. And at the same time, he picked up a place for his parents to live nearby, called Pelican House, which conveniently happened to be right next to his favourite watering hole, Brown's Hotel which is still open and serving pints today. And if you're in Larn, you do have to pop in as part of the Dylan pilgrimage. So we've looked at the ghosts, which were said to be haunting Larn. And we've looked at the places connected to Dylan, his boathouse, his writing shed just above it, his favourite pub down the road, and where his parents were based just next to it. And yet there are no real reports with any substance of Dylan himself haunting them. And believe me, when I say I hunted high and low, I really did, because this this does combine two of my, my big passions in life, I guess, because as a journalist who specialises in the arts, I have written a lot, a heck of a lot, about Dylan Thomas over the years. And as a writer who publishes books about the paranormal and the strange and the weird and the wonderful and the curious, I have written a lot about ghosts. And believe me, I would love to tie these two together if I could in some shape or form. And it was a few years ago when I struck gold in quite an unexpected place. It was in the autobiography of a ghost hunter, the ghost hunter I alluded to earlier, who I, I really think is one of the most important, if not one of the most famous 
ghost hunters to walk the earth. And that is a man called Peter Underwood. Peter Underwood published the autobiography of a ghost hunter. And as it says on the cover, he was the president of the Ghost Club at the time that he wrote this. And Peter Underwood, I think it's fair to say, can be given credit for effectively inventing the regional or country-specific ghost books. And so all of those countless books out there, much like the books that I write, books like Ghosts of Wales, wherever they might be, it could be Haunted Cornwall, it could be Spooky Scotland, it could be the Supernatural London, or the Poltergeists of um, (laughs) Plymouth, or apparitions of Aberystwyth. I don't know. All, all of those kind of books. Peter Underwood started this trend of grouping ghosts together using geography. And while he might not have invented it, he certainly popularised this idea from the 1970s onwards. And I think it's safe to say that without Peter Underwood, I would not be publishing the books that I now publish on ghosts. I would not be recording podcasts like this about ghosts and folklore and stuff. And so a big thank you to Peter Underwood for getting the ball rolling. And in particular, for the sake of this podcast, thank you for the books which focus on whales. His most famous one called Haunted Whales Nowadays. When it was first published, it was called Ghosts of Whales, uh, a name I have since adopted, shall we say, been influenced by and tweaked. But there are other authors as well out there who have used Ghosts of Wales in some shape or form, not just me and Peter Underwood. But back to the Peter Underwood book, which is now called Haunted Wales. And in the entry for Larn, he doesn't really say much at all about Dylan Thomas, besides the fact that People have mentioned seeing this ghost, which we'll we'll come to later. But there are very few details in it. And far be it from me to accuse the great Peter Underwood of, of, of waffling a little bit. But it does seem to be more setting the scene and, and descriptive than it is about being specific about ghosts. And this led me to believe that maybe on his visit... Peter Underwood had drawn up a bit of a blank and didn't really have much to say about Dylan Thomas. And how wrong I was, because when I stumbled across his autobiography, it is a goldmine of Dylan Thomas' ghostly stories, which begin way back in the 1940s. And for this part of the podcast to truly begin at the beginning, we are going to have to leave Wales, cross the border into England and head for the capital for London, when Peter Underwood was working for Dense Publishing. And as a result, he met many of their authors when they popped into the offices. And as a quick aside and a spooky coincidence, Dylan wasn't the only writer who grew up in Wales that he met and spoke to about ghosts. He also met Ernest Rees, who was an editor for the Everyman's Library series and, according to Peter Underwood, is the man who came up with the title 
for that very long-running series. Now, Ernest Rees was half Welsh, half English, and grew up in a house in Carmarthen. And it was while living there that he was told, in inverted commas, queer stories which ignited in him a lifelong interest with the paranormal, which he shared with Peter Underwood. Now, he told him a story about that house in Carmarthen, just down the road from Larne, that he lived in growing up. And I I found it fascinating, so I'd like to tell you that story, and I'm going to quote directly from the autobiography quickly here. And the story tells of how a bishop had murdered a girl in the wine cellar, and her blood had run into the deep well, and that its water was forever afterwards a rusty red. Now, that's the end of the quotation there, but it's not the end of Ernest's spooky stories, and I think that one alone, as as short and sweet as it is, is so vivid. I mean, the, the idea of a bishop filling a well with his victim's blood is a very gruesome, it's almost a folk horror part of Carmarthenshire history there that people might have forgotten about. But nevertheless, onto his other story. He actually believed that he saw with his own eyes a ghost while living in that house in Carmarthen. It was a perfectly nice sunny day, what they call a magic summer's day. And he was looking out in the morning sunshine over the garden at the green hills beyond. And from that vantage point, he could see out and in through the window of a nearby house into the nursery. And it was there that he saw a strange apparition. A little girl about three years old sitting in a round bath and shining like a golden figure in the sun. Now, this sight is said to have delighted him, and he looked for her again, but that was the one and only time he saw this girl, and when he made inquiries, he learnt that no child lived in that house, but some years before, a little girl of three had lived there and had been found drowned in her bath. After such a chilling discovery, maybe it's no coincidence that he did indeed develop a fascination with these subjects and would go on to edit books of ghost stories. Now, just down the road from Carmarthen, where this all took place, in the same county of Carmarthenshire, is Larn, is Dylan Thomas's home at the end of his life. And Dylan Thomas also popped in to see Peter Underwood on more than one occasion. And Peter Underwood was clearly a fan because he notes that Dylan was good enough to sign his first edition of the collected poems for him. And almost living up to his own stereotypes here, Peter Underwood notes that the first time Dylan popped in was to get an advance on his money. And Dylan was notorious for having next to little money. Also, One of the first things he said to Peter on that first encounter was, you don't have the cost of a drink, do you? Now, while Dylan certainly did enjoy a drink, these reports of him being some wild, out-of-control, drunken alcoholic 
are, are now considered to be somewhat slightly wide of the mark. It's a form of mythology which continues to surround him, but certainly he was short of money and he did like a drink or two. So it's not out of character of him to ask Peter Underwood if he could have some money for a drink. As it turns out, they went for a drink together. They met in Charing Cross Road in one of Dylan's London locals. And surprise, surprise, Underwood did bring up the subject of ghosts. And again, I'm quoting, he says that Dylan was by no means sceptical of the idea of ghosts. Indeed, he had, he said, had one or two experiences himself when he believed he was completely sober. Now, one place Dylan thought always had a strange atmosphere was another one of his London haunts, which was the Gargoyle Club in Soho. And he said he would not spend a night there alone for anything. And when he was asked why, and I think this is a very interesting, a very important point, not just about ghosts, but about Dylan in general. And I'm going to quote, he became very serious and said he had seen his father after his death. And occasionally he felt the unmistakable presence of his dead father. Now, Dylan Thomas told Peter Underwood that he had seen the ghost of his father after he had died, and he still felt his presence. Now, as, as again, as you may or may not know, his most famous poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, was indeed written about his own father, who was losing his sight at the time. And... While this, this probably isn't the place and I'm not the appropriate person to be doing any psychological analysis on Dylan Thomas, towards the end of his life, it would appear that he was haunted in more ways than one. But more than that, Dylan had a theory as to why his father and other spirits, other supposed ghosts, remained here in this world with us and didn't move on to some 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 afterlife some heaven wherever they should be after passing over and again i'm going to directly quote peter underwood here so i don't get this this wrong at all and he said i remember he said that if you wanted to die or were reconciled to the fact it was different but if you fought against death and refused to accept it as his father had then he thought it very likely that, inverted commas, something lingered on after the death of the physical body. In effect, Dylan seemed to be saying that he believed the human spirit, even after death, could rage against the dying of the light. Now, not long after that meeting with Peter Underwood, Dylan himself did also, sadly, pass away. And before we move away from London, and this is a bit of a teaser because I can't go into too much depth on this episode, but Dylan did actually meet a certain Alistair Crowley, the great beast himself, the infamous English occultist who the newspapers claimed was the most evil man in the world. 
during his time drinking in London. And one anecdote claims that Crowley asked Dylan to draw something on a piece of paper. He sat at the other side of this pub and also drew an image on a piece of paper. And when they compared them, they were identical. Now, Dylan went white as a sheet as a result, and I would like to play the Twilight Zone music now if I could, but as regular listeners will know, my special effects are not really up to it, and I don't want to get sued. So let's just say Dylan was freaked out. He left that French pub immediately. And if you'd like to hear more about that, or if you're just an Alistair Crowley fan in general, I've got a nice collection of... Alistair Crowley stories and the Welsh personalities that he crossed paths with. So we'll we'll save Alistair Crowley for another episode. But getting back to Dylan, Dylan did pass away, but that wasn't the end of Peter Underwood's interest in the great poet. And he was left to wonder what Dylan would make of the fact that some people then believed he was haunting his former home, the Boathouse in Larne. Now, Peter Underwood did indeed pay a personal visit to the Boathouse while researching his book, Haunted Wales, and he met with several people, he says, who had glimpsed the distinct and untidy figure of the brilliant little poet who was usually seen in the mid-afternoon, which does kind of tie in with his routine when he was alive of visiting the pub. And in Underwood's own words, he says that with Dylan's head being so full of legend and myth and applause and admiration, maybe something of that tormented personality does indeed return from time to time to the place where he spent many happy hours and where he worked so hard writing and rewriting revising and re-revising and polishing and re-polishing until he achieved what he called poetic truth. Now, there is an interesting follow-up to this tale, and it sees us jump from London to Larne, and now we're heading to Swansea. And it was in 1980 that a correspondent called Margaret Hopkins, after reading the original Ghosts of Wales, wrote to Peter Underwood and mentioned that in 1939, She had actually met Dylan Thomas once, and she and a friend, Mabel Davis, both young girls at the time, knew an older girl who was acquainted with Dylan. Now, the three of them were walking together by the entrance to Singleton Park, which is in Swansea and not too far from Cumdonkin Drive in the uplands where Dylan grew up and where his parents' house was. And incidentally, if you are a Dylan fan... I can highly recommend paying a visit to his birthplace, Five Cumdonkin Drive, which again is open to tourists. As is the amazing Dylan Thomas Centre, just down the road, bang in the middle of Swansea. And I'm going to do a little bit of name dropping here. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But when I interviewed the actor, Tom Hollander, who played Dylan Thomas in A Poet in New York, which was released to coincide with his centenary year in 2014, he said to discover what Dylan was really like, he was sent to the Dylan Thomas Centre in Swansea to find out. So if it's good enough for the man playing Dylan, I think it's 
good enough for the rest of us. <laughs> well, certainly it's good enough for me, put it that way. Anyway, it was by the entrance to Singleton Park in Swansea where they bumped into Dylan Thomas and the third girl who was friendly with Dylan stopped for a chat. And from there they went back to the older girl's bedsit. Dylan was, to quote, somewhat inebriated. And yes, I know I said earlier this reputation for being a drunk might be undeserved, but you can certainly see where this reputation came from. But anyway, he was doing most of the talking in this state that he was in. And, and she notes that he was married at the time, living in Larne, and was back to visit his old haunts in Swansea. Now, many years later, Margaret felt the urge to go back and rediscover her old haunts in Swansea herself. She found some accommodation, and it was in the summer of 1973 that she was in Cumdonkin Park, which is the park you can see from Dylan Thomas's childhood bedroom in Cumdonkin Drive. And after a week or so, she was sitting in the park, reading the paper one evening around tea time. It does, incidentally, say the local paper, which I would take to be the South Wales Evening Post, which, incidentally, is my one tenuous link with Dylan Thomas, because we both started our professional writing careers on the same newspaper, the South Wales Evening Post, or the South Wales Daily Post, as it would have been known in Dylan's day. Anyway, the place was completely deserted, except for a gardener, who was working some distance away. And Margaret wasn't really paying him any attention because she was totally absorbed in her newspaper. Sitting comfortably on the seat at the foot of a slope, shielded by trees overlooking a stream. Suddenly, a shower of small stones, clods of turf and twigs and pieces of small branches came hurtling down the slope. Her immediate reaction after being hit by all these projectiles was that it must be boys. She was annoyed, but it was just kids messing about. But when she emerged from that secluded spot, she found herself all alone. There was nobody there. The place was deserted, not a soul in sight, and she shouted to that gardener, Did you hear that? Apparently, he did not hear a thing. But if it had been boys messing around there, he would definitely have noticed them. She went back to her previous position to sit down to read the paper. And she had this idea that maybe Dylan was somehow up to his old tricks, as she called them. Now, it might take a little bit of a leap of faith to follow her trail of thought on this one. But she says... The incident had reminded her of a Dylan Thomas story, a story called The Hunchback in the Park, which does indeed involve a hunchpark, a hunchpark. It doesn't, it doesn't involve a hunchpark. It involves a hunchback in a park, in the park that she was in, in Cum Donkin Park. And I... <laughs> I would usually chop out mistakes like that, but I've I've tickled myself with, with Hunchpark, so that one is staying in. <laughs> that one is staying in. But anyway, this Hunchback, or Hunchpark, would have been sitting in the same spot that she was sitting in Cumdonkin Park when these missiles were thrown at her. And as far as she was concerned, there is no natural way 
those things could have been thrown. There was no living person there to hurl them. Yet, she believes this is the kind of mischievous prank Dylan Thomas might have played on somebody, and it was a place he knew very well and had fond memories of. I mean, clearly he had an attachment to the place. He mentions Cumdonkin Park many times in his works. Now, I'll be honest, I've, I've researched a lot of these kind of stories, and that is quite a weak link, really, between Dylan and, and the events that happened. I mean, Dylan w w was not seen or anything like that, and Dylan, as far as I know, is not known for throwing stones and things at people. But nevertheless, she'd met Dylan, she seems to think it was Dylan, so we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. But the next story, if evidence is more your thing, we have somebody who claims to have seen a ghost, to, to have seen the face, an actual face, which they say is exactly the same as Dylan Thomas's face. And more than that, this ghost was seen in the building where Dylan fell into a coma from which he did not awake. So having been in his birth town of Swansea, we are now heading all the way across the Atlantic to America, to New York, and to the Chelsea Hotel. It was in the Chelsea Hotel that Dylan Thomas was staying on his final ill-fated tour of America. He liked to have a drink in the White Horse Tavern, and it was after drinking in the White Horse Tavern and going back to his room in the Chelsea that he is claimed to have made this very famous quote, which, even if he didn't say, has now entered folklore and will forever be associated with Dylan, whether it's true or not. And that quote is, I've had 18 straight whiskies. I think that's a record. And I have no idea what the record is for whiskey drinking, so we'll just have to take his word on that one. But anyway, now Dylan isn't the only famous person to stay in the Chelsea. Possibly the most famous or inf infamous, I guess you'd say, is when Sid Vicious stayed there with his girlfriend Nancy Spungen, Sid and Nancy. Nancy was stabbed to death while there. Sid himself died of an overdose not long after while Leonard Cohen uh, famously was there, who was a Dylan Thomas fan himself, as was Bob Dylan. I mean, the, the giveaway is Bob Dylan named himself after Dylan, uh, and he also spent his time in the Chelsea Hotel. But anyway, back to our Dylan, back to the Welsh Dylan anyway, at least for this episode, and his ghost there, or certainly the, the, the report that I'm going to be talking about, I think there's been a few sightings, but this sighting, was picked up by the press in 2009. And for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to reference the Wales Online version, but m most versions of this story are, you know, t telling, telling the same thing. But it claims that a terrified tourist has reported seeing the ghost of Dylan Thomas in the haunted New York hotel where he fell into his fatal coma. The horrified guest at the world-famous Chelsea Hotel, the scene of the poet's alcohol-fueled final days, claimed she saw the poet's bug-eyed head floating in front of her bedroom mirror. Now, when I say her, 
This witness is only identified by the name Anna, and she published her account on a website called Chelsea Bloggers, which is a website dedicated to the 125-year-old hotel, as it was at the time. And what I'm going to do is to read to you exactly what Anna wrote on that blog. I suddenly looked up and right in front of the bedroom mirror, I saw a head in mid-air. The head seemed to grimace at me, and I will never forget the eyes staring down almost bug-eyed. The face seemed to be wearing some kind of theatre makeup, bright red lips drawn on very carefully, white face paint, and year-length tightly coiled black hair. I have an idea of who this man was after looking at images of the famous that lived there and departed to the afterlife. The picture I observed made my stomach sink. It was the same face, the same grimace, and those same sad and large eyes. It looked like Dylan Thomas's face. Now, that description to me sounds more like Pagliacci the Clown or something. <laughs> Pavarotti painted up. But she certainly sounds convinced that, you know, she's she's seen something. She believes she's seen something. And Dylan is quite a distinctive face if she's compared it. Uh, I, I don't know. But that brings us to the end of the New York account. We've done Lan, we've done London, we've done Swansea, we've done New York. At this point, I would like to take a deep breath and thank you all for sticking with me for so long in this episode. Because as you might have noticed, this has been something of an epic quest in search of Dylan Thomas. I try and keep most of my episodes between 20 and 30 minutes. This one has already smashed 40 minutes. And I mean, God knows if I keep going on, it could be 40 hours. I don't know. So I think we've reached the point in the episode where I like to ask what you think. And I guess one of the big questions should be, what do you think about these extra long podcasts? Do you prefer longer, more detailed episodes like this one? Or should I shut up and keep things short and sweet? As usual, it's quite easy to get in touch. Track me down on social media. I'm on all of the main social media platforms. Well, ex except for that one where people dance, but all the other ones. Just do a search for Mark Race. Put the word folklore in, or ghosts, or whales, or any of those kind of words. I'll pop up on top. Or you, you can email me from the website if you prefer, or shout at me in the street, however you want to get in touch. And of course, there's all the other questions. I mean, have you, or do you know of anyone, who thinks that they have also encountered the ghost of Dylan Thomas? Does the great poet still haunt in and around his hometown of Swansea in Cumdonkin Park in Singleton Park? or across the pond in America, where he was adored, where people loved him. Maybe he still returns there. Or maybe he's still walking around London, hanging around with his bohemian contemporaries, trying to find enough money for a pint and running away from that scary Alistair Crowley. Or maybe he's just kicking back, 
and taking it easy in scenic Larn, the easy life in West Wales, with a whiskey on one side and the ghost of a cockle picker on the other. Who knows? I I certainly don't know. It's been such a long episode, I'm starting to ramble now. So let's wrap things up with the obligatory shout-out that if you have enjoyed this, please consider subscribing in whichever way you choose to listen to this thing because subscribing is good. You never miss an episode and it puts a smile on my face because I know people are listening. Also, as I hope has been clear throughout this podcast, a lot of the research for this episode has come from one, well, two, two men, really. The first is Peter Underwood and if you have not read his autobiography, I would highly recommend it. It's quite cheap. It's You can pick it up secondhand and the postage will probably cost you more than the book itself. So it's quite cheap. And the second man that I have to thank is, of course, Dylan Thomas himself. And this, again, goes without saying, if you are not familiar with Dylan Thomas, or maybe you're just put off or, or intimidated by the thought of buying a big tome of poetry... I know a lot of people like to dip their toe in the water, as it were, with Dylan, with his short stories. That's always a good starting point. And the the great thing with the internet now is you can just do a video search and listen to a lot of the these poems, these stories being read by Dylan himself. You can listen to Dylan's voice from beyond the grave, as it were. Or, quite controversially, I would say they sound better when read by Richard Burton, who was a very good friend of Dylan, who was buried with a copy of Dylan's poems, as it goes. But anyway, we can argue about that some other time, because this brings me to the grand finale. And talking about recordings, what I really wanted to do to wrap up this episode was to finish with the Reverend Eli Jenkins's prayer from Dylan Thomas's Under Milk Wood. And it would have been perfect to use that version narrated by Richard Burton or any of the versions which are sung out there. There's a wonderful version by Sabrin Turville or any male voice choir. But again, I do not want to be sued. And so unfortunately, I'm just going to have to do it myself. And while I don't share Richard Burton's acting ability, we are both Portalbert boys, so I'm sure this will be very similar. And it just leaves me to say, oh, let us see another day. Bless us all this night, I pray. And to the sun, we all will bow and say goodbye, but just for now. No star. <laughs>